The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here's your top five at five. Stocks are kicking off a new week in the red after Friday's blowout job support. Investors sort of on edge ahead of the Fed's final decision of 2022. China stocks are surging overnight again as Beijing signals a COVID-0 policy shift in the wake of last week's unrest. And uncertainty at OPEC as the cartel balks at any major production move in the wake of new Russian price caps and a European Union import ban. Elon Musk once again in the headlines says Twitter's biggest advertiser has, quote, fully resumed operations on the platform after a brief war of words. We're going to get into it. Plus, Sam Bankman-Fried responding to calls from Capitol Hill to testify over the collapse of FTX and the loss of millions of dollars of customer deposits. It is Monday, December 5th, and you're watching Worldwide Exchange here on CNBC. Good morning. I'm Seema Modi, and for Brian Sullivan, who is reporting from Europe this morning, he will join us in just a few minutes. Let's kick it off with a look at how futures are faring, because we are coming off two weeks of gains for the stock market. We're implied open uh, lower by 100 points for the Dow Jones Industrial. Nasdaq is down by 29, and the S&P 500 is down by 14. Keep in mind, on Friday, we did end lower following that hotter-than-expected jobs report. Let's pivot to bonds and take a look at where yields are faring at this hour. The 10-year yield, we are higher at 3.51%, the 30-year at 35 as well. Take a look at that. In energy, where oil remains uh, a big focus given the OPEC meeting, Ice Brent crude up by 1.7% at $87. Nat gas down nearly 4% right now. In cryptocurrencies, we are seeing Bitcoin move. We did see Bitcoin move higher last week, and it's up again by 1.3%, back above 17,000. Let's go worldwide now. Europe is open for trade. Juliana Tattlebaum standing by in our London newsroom. And Juliana, I love the stat that you shared during your hour. Seven weeks of gains for the European Stock 600? Seema, that's right. And you wouldn't necessarily think it, given all of the negative chatter around the economic picture in Europe. But European equities have been on a pretty good run. This morning, fairly muted start to trade. It's a mixed picture. You've got the CAC 40 and the Zetra DAX trading marginally lower. The Swiss market uh, is, meanwhile, trading higher by about 0.2%. Italy underperforming. We've got some green on the board, though, for the FTSE 100. We're up about 0.3%. We got some final services PMIs come through this morning, which for the Eurozone and for the UK showed the contraction continues, but the situation is not as bad as feared. So still, we are below that 50 mark, which separates contraction from expansion, but we are not in a worst-case scenario heading into the winter. From a sector perspective this morning, here's the split for European equities. At the top of the board, we've got basic resources outperforming up more than 2%, perhaps part of the reason the China reopening story that's gathering momentum, some signs that the COVID policy in China may be easing. So those stocks catching a bid on the downside, underperformance from Food and Bev down about 1.1%. Seema, I just want to highlight one stock for you that's moving this morning. That is Credit Suisse. We're 
up 7%. Saudi Arabia's crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, is reportedly considering an investment of around $500 million to back Credit Suisse's new unit, First Boston, as part of a $1 billion capital raise. According to the Wall Street Journal, additional financing could come from U.S. investors, including former Barclays chief executive Bob Diamond's Atlas Merchant Capital. So the Credit Suisse story continues to grip investors. Seema? Yeah, at crazy that it's up 7%, but still at $3. Uh, yeah, 3.1, I guess, right now is where the stock is trading. Juliana, always great to see you. Love your reporting. That's Juliana Teitelbaum in London. To this morning's top story and a major policy U-turn in China, sending stocks there soaring. Silvana Hanau here with the full story. Silvana. Seema, good morning to you. Well, that's right. So markets in Hong Kong and China closing sharply higher this morning on news. China is relaxing some of its strict COVID zero rules across the country. For example, today, commuters in Beijing and at least 16 other cities were allowed to board buses and subways without a COVID test in the previous 48 hours for the first time in months. Residents also no longer have to provide personal information when buying cough and cold medicine, reversing a policy designed to keep tabs on possible outbreaks. Among the top stock gainers overnight, Chinese technology and consumer names like Tencent, Medawan, Alibaba, EV stocks like Li Auto and Neo also surging. Hong Kong-listed casino stocks also popping. MGM China, Win Macau and more up double digits. The COVID policy shift comes just one week after public anger over the COVID control measures spilled into rare public protests in cities from Shanghai to Beijing, some even calling for the resignation of President Xi Jinping. Seema, we're also following reports this morning. Apple supplier Foxconn is expecting its COVID-stricken plant in Zhangzhou, the largest iPhone factory in the world, to resume 100 percent. Production later this month shares up 8% or early next month after dealing with outbreaks and worker unrest in recent weeks, Seema. Wow, just fascinating to see a turn of, a, of events there and now to see uh, the government responding yeah. in a way to those protests. Exactly. Yep. Silvana, thank you. We'll you see you see soon. Me. To another developing story this morning and the start of what could become some very volatile weeks and months ahead with the price of oil. A lot of moving parts all at once and even more questions about what's going to happen next. Brian Sullivan in Brussels, Belgium, with more on a flurry of headlines. Brian. Well, isn't it, Seema, a little bit weird and ironic that on the day that all these oil regulations, price caps, sanctions kick in, China suddenly decides that they may start to reopen and consume more oil. Maybe it's just coincidence. All right, we'll talk more about that all day here on CNBC, but let's talk about what we do know. A flurry of oil headlines. OPEC, they met virtually yesterday. Now, the headlines will say, oh, they didn't do anything. Well, they did do something. They continued their round of cuts. Two million barrels a day cuts off their quotas. They're not cutting that much, obviously, we know that. But still, they're not adding barrels to a market, which now may get pulled back on because of, yes, the new EU sanctions on ocean-borne or seaborne Russian crude kick in today. Effectively, Europe has said we're not going to buy any more Russian oil. The dirty little secret is over a million and a half barrels a day have still been coming to Europe from Russia. By the way, Russia says that's fine. We're not going to sell you any more oil anyway. Outside of that, G7, which is the United States, Japan and others, have instituted a price cap, $60 for Brent crude on Russian oil. So any Russian oil not going to Europe, theoretically may fall under this price cap, but we'll see how they actually enforce that. Oh, and by the way, to my point, Seema, Russia has sort of vowed retaliation, saying we're not going to sell any more to Europe and we're not going to sell to any country that imposes a price cap. Now, I want to make something very, very clear. 
we are here in Europe, and there's this kind of this theme like, oh, Europe's natural gas storage levels are fine. Everything is fine. No, no, no. Today is day one of the, of the latest round, the beginning, looking into next year for natural gas and oil. We're going to be here for the next couple of days talking today about oil, tomorrow about natural gas, and about renewables on Wednesday. But just a flurry of headlines. And I want to, I want to say something right at the top of the show. The price that we show for oil, the Brent crude chart, that's just a futures contract and does not reflect what people are actually buying oil, the physical barrel for, and Europe's costs are probably going to go up 25 to $75 billion in the next year. Wow, that's a mind-boggling stat. And, you know, is there a magic number out there, Brian, that OPEC looks to? I mean, could OPEC change its mind about output levels if the market changes? Yes, and they said so. And they didn't have a meeting. They didn't even have the virtual meeting. wasn't even open to journalists. Maybe they didn't want questions about Russian price caps. Who knows? But they did note, Seema, in their sort of communique, you know, that they stand ready. Now, do they stand ready to cut? Or do they stand ready to add barrels to the point I was trying to make at the top of the show? I just it just isn't a 365 days in the year. I last I checked. Right, Seema. And on the day that the price cap kicks in on the day, the EU sanctions kick in. That's randomly the day that China basically says, OK, we're going to reopen. If that's true, they're going to consume, according to the IEA, maybe two, two and a half million more barrels per day in a world where the barrels may be coming off. Wow. It's random and interesting, I guess. Definitely random and interesting. Well, what is your read on some of the net oil importing nations like China, India, Turkey? Will they agree to that price cap? No, no. I mean, India, you know, yeah. you've spoken with Prime Minister Modi. They need to buy or they need to do what's best for India. Now, we don't have to agree with that, but India is going to do what's best for India. Here's the great variable for Europe. Imagine if you're India, and there's people I've talked to that have suggested, I'm not saying this is going to happen, but I've certainly spoke with people who've said, how about this scenario, Seema? You're India, you're already a huge buyer of Russian oil. Okay, so now Europe is short oil. Why wouldn't India or China or Turkey, one of the buyers of Russian oil, buy more than they need, transfer it, say they buy it for 55 bucks a barrel, Brent, 60 bucks a barrel, right? Europe needs oil over here. Just resell that oil, I don't know, 100 bucks a barrel back to Europe because Europe is now going to be probably short a million and a half barrels of oil a day. That's 42 gallons of fuel per barrel of oil. You can do the math on what could be a, a looming fuel shortage. By the way, a couple refineries here in Europe, Schwett in Germany, they've said they're not sure where they're going to get all their oil to make fuel. There's a huge refinery in Italy. People are driving by us here, diesel fumes. See what it looks like in a month or three months. This is sort of day one of the new reality, Seema. Yeah, and clearly a lot happening on the ground. By the way, Brent crude now up 2% at $87 a barrel. Brian, good stuff. We'll see you very soon. That is Brian Sullivan live as other OPEC events continue. When we come back on this show, Friday's blowout job support. What could that mean for a possible Fed policy pivot? And your money. Plus, Elon Musk and Apple making nice after a brief and apparently one-sided war of words. And later, much more on a wild week for oil. RBC's Lima Croft joining us. A very busy hour still ahead here on Worldwide Exchange. 
ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. Futures are slightly lower this morning as investors await more economic data this week. There's new prints on the producer price index, durable goods orders, and consumer sentiment, all providing a fresh read on inflation as the Fed enters its blackout period ahead of its December policy meeting that happens next week. Wall Street is forecasting a 50 basis point rate hike as investors look for signs of a slowdown in the central bank's tightening campaign going into 2023. For more on what to expect, let's bring in Mary Ann Bartels, Chief Investment Strategist at Sanctuary Wealth. And Mary Ann, it's great to have you on. You know, that hotter than expected job support, that was somewhat surprising. What was your read? Oh, it was very hot, and it was hot across the board. And and I think the particular uh, data point that the Fed is going to zero in on uh, was wage growth on a month-to-month basis. It was double uh, expectations at six-tenths of a percent, and year-on-year we're above 5%. And they're not going to like that number. But the market is still anticipating that there'll be a little bit of a pivot where they'll stop the 75 basis points and switch to 50 basis points in December. But I think the market may start shifting that maybe we'll go a little bit higher uh, in February, not 25.50, and certainly that they're going to probably stay higher for longer. So 50 basis points at the December meeting. Why 50 if we just got a better than expected job support? Doesn't that push the Fed to say, no, let's stick to 75? Or does it really come down to the CPI report, which comes out next week? Well, I think it's a number of things that they're looking at. Certainly housing uh, data has been um, softening uh, quite a bit. If you look at commodity prices, particularly like the CRB index, you're seeing a lot of commodities roll over. CPI does look like it's already peaked and rolled over. So I, they, they've been raising quite a bit, probably the most aggressive of my entire career. And they're going to want to start seeing what kind of an impact these rate hikes are having because of the long lag. You know, the lag could be 12 months or, or more. So I, I I think they'll definitely do 50. I don't think they'll do 75, but I think next year they're going to be a little bit higher than what the market was anticipating. Meantime, we're watching Chinese tech stocks move sharply higher. This has been a big trade over the last two weeks, Marianne. I'm not sure how closely you've been watching it, but just this idea that China is starting to reopen. The government may be, in a way, bending to those protesters. Uh, Your thoughts on how that impacts the global economy? Sure. Well, if you look at just China alone um, and you look at valuations, it's the cheapest market. It's, it's trading in the nine, you know, nine times, you know, P.E. multiple. Um, it's, you know, very, very oversold. So I'm not surprised to actually see a bounce. And I think one of the surprises that we'll have in 2023 
If we wind up having the Fed actually begin to uh, pivot and the market sense that, the emerging markets actually might be the biggest outperformer uh, in terms of re- returns. So I'm not surprised to see this. Now, there's a lot of geopolitical risk. Um, but we may actually in 2023 have markets that are surprisingly stronger than people are anticipating. Biggest event you'll be watching this week. We get durable good orders. We also get manufacturing data later this week. Marianne, what's on your radar? Well, definitely uh, durable goods. Anything to do with pricing, the Fed is going to definitely zero in on um, to just see where we are in pricing. Now, in terms of the PMIs in manufacturing, we finally broke uh, broke below uh, 50 uh, and we were traded at 49, which indicates, you know, a recession. So when we go to the services data, it's going to be very interesting to see that particular data and how strong, because the goods market has been weak, but the service market has been strong. And as we know, the Fed is trying to slow inflation. One of the ways to do that is to slow everything down. And so they're going to want services down as well. So that's something that I'm particularly paying attention to. Yeah, it's a great point, especially when you look at the outperformance of industrials over the past month. Uh, But obviously the market doesn't always follow the economic indicators. Marianne, we'll leave the conversation there. Thank you for joining us. That's Marianne Bartels. Thank you so much. Still on deck as crypto suffers what could be one of its biggest investor confidence crisis ever. Some still argue the use case has never been stronger. Ahead, we're live at the first event Bitcoin conference in Africa, the epicenter of grassroots crypto adoption. That's next. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back. You saw Bitcoin prices right there at 17,300. Sam Bankman-Free just will not stop talking, even as pretty much every criminal attorney on the planet keeps saying this is the worst possible legal defense. We also got some clarity on when lawmakers in the U.S. might be pulling the ex-CEO of FTX to testify on Capitol Hill. Here to break it down for us is CNBC tech reporter Mackenzie Sigalos joining us from Accra, Ghana today. Mackenzie, walk us through these latest headlines uh, over the weekend. Good morning, Seema. So FBS was FBS. Sam Bankman-Fried was again insisting in this interview with the Financial Times that there was a firewall between him as the CEO of FTX and the hedge fund Alameda Research. But what was new in this FT interview was the fact that SBF admitted closer involvement in financial decisions in Alameda than previously disclosed. Now, that's key because up until now, this media blitz by Bankman-Fried has really focused on him trying to make the case that he wasn't the one making these bad decisions. His mistake was not being more involved. But all these press interviews, remember, are not under oath. U.S. Representative Maxine Waters asked 
asked SBF on Twitter to appear before a December 13th hearing. Bankman-Fried responded, saying that if he understands what happened at FTX by then, he'd appear. Meanwhile, the contagion effect from FTX continues. Barry Silbert's crypto investment bank, Genesis, apparently owes Gemini, which is that crypto exchange run by the Winklevoss brothers, some $900 million, according to the FT. So a lot of moving parts here, Seema. We should mention, mention, Mackenzie, you are in Ghana today, right? It's very loud at the Africa Bitcoin conference. What's going on there? So for the next three days, we're going to be hearing from some of the biggest names in Bitcoin who actually see the recent implosion of FTX as another example that sets Bitcoin apart from the thousands of other altcoin projects and crucially from these centralized crypto platforms. Because remember, the Bitcoin network focuses on two big things, decentralization and security. And so sentiment is really positive here about the future of the industry because they feel that people around the world are realizing that Bitcoin is more secure than other altcoins, it's more reliable, and it's decentralized meaning that these centralized actors can't mess with your money. Now, Block CEO Jack Dorsey, Strike CEO Jack Maulers, and Ray Youssef, who runs Paxful, one of the most prominent decentralized crypto exchanges on the continent, will all be speaking this week, as will some of the biggest names in Lightning, which is that layer two technology built on top of Bitcoin that's trying to replace existing fiat payment rails by making cash transfers around the world instantaneous, instantly settled, and cheaper. And crucially, we're also hearing from entrepreneurs based in the region who have been leaning into crypto as a way to make life easier. What about the real-term applications of crypto, Mackenzie? Can it actually, are the people down there saying that it could actually make things better or easier than fiat cash? Yeah, so several countries in Africa, Ghana, Nigeria, and Kenya, to name a few, are these prime examples of places where grassroots, totally organic crypto adoption is happening because it's just better than the existing system. There's a thriving peer-to-peer crypto payment network across the continent using a combination of Bitcoin and U.S. dollar peg stable coins like Tether. We're also talking about Bitcoin as a savings technology because, yes, its price is volatile, but in countries where there's rampant inflation and the local currency has lost most of its value, Bitcoin can become the safer and more accessible option. Now, mining for Bitcoin in some cases is creating a financial incentive to build infrastructure to harness stranded renewable energy and then make that power accessible to communities through microgrids. Another point here, Seema, there is a delegation from Lagos led by Bernard Para. And what's especially interesting about Nigeria is that the government has outright banned crypto, very hostile to it, yet the market is absolutely thriving. A lot of Nigerians I've spoken with see Bitcoin as a tool in fighting back against an oppressive government. So these are the use cases that people on the ground here are really excited about. Yeah, the promise of emerging markets. Uh, perhaps that's where it can do better. Bitcoin, it, that is. Mackenzie, thanks. That's Mackenzie Sigalos in Ghana. Thanks, Seema. Let's get a check on this morning's other headlines. NBC's Philip Manna in New York with the latest. Philip, good morning. Hi, Seema. Good morning. Former President Donald Trump is facing criticism criticism from both parties today after he suggested that the Constitution be terminated in his effort to overturn the 2020 election results. The 2024 candidate again cited baseless claims of widespread election fraud. The White House says the attack on the Constitution should be universally condemned. The top Republicans in Congress have not publicly commented on Trump's post. NBC News reached out to spokespeople for Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, but as of this morning, have not received a response. 
All 103,000 residents in Moore County, North Carolina, remain without electricity after what officials say was a targeted attack that knocked out two power substations. A spokesperson for Duke Energy warned that it could take until Thursday to restore electricity to that area. According to police, a suspect or suspects drove up to two power substations on Saturday night and opened fire, disabling them and resulting in that blackout. FBI and state investigators have joined in on this investigation. The eruption of the world's largest active volcano continues in Hawaii. During the past 24 hours, the lava flow advanced at an average rate of about 40 feet per hour, according to the U.S. Geological Survey's most recent update. Plus, Mount Semeru, Indonesia's highest volcano, erupted on Sunday. According to the National Disaster Management Agency, monsoon rains eroded and finally collapsed the lava dome atop the 12,000-foot-high volcano, causing that eruption. So far, no casualties have been reported. That's it from here, Seema. Send it back to you. Wow, amazing footage of those volcanoes. Uh, Philip, thank you. you. Got it. Straight ahead, why Apple is reportedly speeding up its reliance on factories outside China at a breakneck pace. But first, we send it back out to our Brian Sullivan in Brussels on more of what's on deck. Brian. Yeah, hey, today could be day one in the next leg of Europe's growing energy crisis. And it's not just Europe. Halima Croft will join us coming up after the break to talk about about what, what happens here may actually be a global energy crisis as Russia vows oil and energy retaliation. Lima Croft and analysis next on Worldwide Exchange. Stocks under pressure to start the week as investors price in the odds of another supersized Fed rate hike. China pulling a zero COVID policy U-turn. Stocks there soaring. And OPEC holding steady as the group outweighs the impact of China's reopening and new Russian oil sanctions out of Europe. It is Monday, December 5th, and you're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back. I'm Seema Modi and for Brian Sullivan, who is reporting from Europe this morning. Much more from Brian in just a minute, but right here around 5.30 a.m. here on the East Coast. Let's get you a check on U.S. stock futures where you'll see price action. We are decisively lower. Dow Jones indicating a lower open by 134 points. Nasdaq is lower by 40. On Friday, we also ended lower after that hotter than expected jobs report. So that two-week winning streak could be coming to an end. Let's take a look at the bond market to see where yields are faring. Uh, Last time I checked, 10-year note was higher, and we are higher. 3.5% 3.5% on the 10-year, the two-year at 4.3. Let's also hit oil prices, which saw its first positive week in four last week, and were higher once again. Brent crude above $87 a barrel, up 1.7%. Time for a look at some of this morning's top stories. And Silvana now with those. Silvana. Seema, good morning. Apple is speeding up plans to move part of its production out of China, home to the world's largest iPhone factory. The Wall Street Journal reports Apple is telling suppliers to assemble more products elsewhere in Asia, such as India and Vietnam. The company is looking to reduce dependence on Taiwanese manufacturers, such as Foxconn, that operate in mainland China. Foxconn accounts for 70 percent of iPhone shipments 
worldwide. Its main factory in Zhangzhou has been hit by worker protests in recent weeks over pay and tough COVID restrictions. Meanwhile, Apple and Amazon are planning to resume advertising on Twitter. That's according to a report by Platformer. Elon Musk announcing during a Twitter Spaces conversation on Saturday that Apple has fully resumed advertising. Apple is Twitter's largest advertiser. Last week, reports say Twitter sent an email to ad agencies offering customers incentives to increase spending on the site. Shares of Credit Suisse are rallying in Europe on reports Saudi Arabia's crown prince is interested in investing in the company's new investment banking unit. The Wall Street Journal says Mohammed bin Salman is considering an investment of about $500 million to back the new unit, CS First Boston. Additional backing could come from U.S. investors, including former Barclays chief Bob Diamond, Seema. Silvana, thank you. you Credit Suisse up 6%. To another developing story. Markets in Hong Kong and China closing sharply higher today on news that China is relaxing some of its strict COVID-0 rules across the country. For example, today, commuters in Beijing and at least 16 other cities were allowed to board buses and subways without a COVID test in the previous 48 hours for the first time in months. Residents also no longer having to provide personal information when buying cough and cold medicine, reversing a policy designed to keep tabs on possible outbreaks. Among the top gainers right now overnight, because check it out, Chinese technology and consumer names are sharply higher. Tencent, Meituan, Alibaba up another 9%. It gained about 22% last week. The EV stocks, uh, NEO surging as well by 14%. Hong Kong-listed casino names also popping. MGM China, Win Macau up double digits right now. The COVID policy shift comes just one week after public anger over the COVID control measures spilled into rare public protests in cities from Shanghai to Beijing, some even calling for the resignation of President Xi Jinping. What does this all mean for oil? Well, interestingly enough, the price of crude catching a bid after a very busy 24 hours. The latest, OPEC Plus, saying it will lock in current production levels and a 2 million barrel per day production cut it voted on back in October. This as the European Union's price cap and seaborne import ban on Russian crude does take effect today. Let's send it out to Brian Sullivan in Brussels, who is all yeah. over this. Brian. Yeah, today really, SEMA is day one of the next leg of the energy crisis. It's a European energy crisis, but could it soon trickle over to Asia or even the United States? Let's find out and bring in our friend Halima Croft, RBC Capital Markets, obviously CNBC contributor as well. Halima, we should be in Vienna. We're not. OPEC did the virtual meeting. I'm here because there's so many stories to tell around sort of the European story. It's Isn't it fascinating, Halima, that there is what, a 0.3% odds that China will basically announce it's going to reopen and thus use more oil on the exact same day the European Union sanctions and the price cap kick in? Isn't that just a shocking coincidence? I mean, shocking coincidence, but here we are, Brian, and this is the really big day. This is the launch of the European seaborne oil embargo, the launch of the price cap plan. You know, you cannot get any Western services now to move Russian barrels anywhere in the world if you pay above $60. And the key factor to watch right now is, will the Russians make good on their threats to withhold supplies to any customer that pays at the cap? So we are watching very closely. The Russians have cut off, you know, Gas importers who would not pay in rubles, they have a real track record of disruption. Will it carry over to oil? 
Yeah, and I'm gonna, I hate to read something. I'm going to read this tweet from the Russian ambassador, by the way, in Vienna, Austria. Starting from this year, I think he meant day, Europe will live without Russian oil. Moscow has already made it clear that it will not supply oil to those countries who support an anti-market price cap very soon. The EU will blame Russia for using oil as a weapon. So the European Union today sort of sanctioned Russia, but also in a weird way, Halima, did it not also kind of sanction itself? Because what people don't realize is that Europe is still using, what, maybe a million and a half barrels of Russian oil per day? Maybe I mean more if you count pipelines into Germany? Yeah, we estimate it's around sort of 1.2 million barrels because seaborne imports have been declining. The question is, with such a threat is, is Russia going to cut off now all pipeline imports as well? I mean, you have countries that received exemptions, Hungary, a number of other landlocked countries. The question is, Germany and Poland have said they will voluntarily stop pipeline imports before the end of the year. Does Russia cut them off sooner? And again, the real question is, yeah. does Russia withhold from other markets? Now, Japan has come out and said they will abide by the cap. The Indians have said, though, they're going to continue purchasing. But can India purchase at these levels if they do not get Western services, shipping, insurance, reinsurance to basically get these barrels? So that's going to be the big question. Can Asia continue to purchase barrels at this level if they do not secure Western services? And the Russians are saying, no, if you don't do the, if you do the cap, no Russian oil. And part, part of our story today is also going to be this sort of secret oil navy that Russia's been building up. We saw documents. We have actual uh, trans sale transactions for these old super tankers that undisclosed buyers, which my sources say are probably likely either Russia or working for Russia to build up this sort of secret oil navy. But your point in your excellent note, as always last night, was basically that we don't know what these compliance firms are going to do. I mean, we're here at the EU Commission the capital of compliance. I mean, if you're if you're an oil buyer and you don't fully understand the rules that are being written back here, you might say, you know what, don't buy anything, even though we need it, because we're not sure if we're insured or we're not sure if the financing you don't want to get sanctioned by the folks back here. Right. I mean, firms have paid millions of dollars for violating Western sanctions, for example, by being engaged in the Iranian oil trade. And so I think a number of compliance departments, at least in these initial weeks, are likely to lead with no. I mean, think about it, Brian. We just got the announced price on Friday afternoon. They are, we're still writing regulations going into this launch today of this price cap plan. I think there's a lot of confusion still about enforcement, how it's going to be monitored. Yep. So again, I think we could have some initial dislocations in the coming weeks as compliance departments just figure out what does this all mean? Can I still do business with Russia? Well, listen, and this show is worldwide exchange, but we got a lot of viewers, obviously, in the United States as well. And all day we're going to talk about, yes, we, we label it Europe's energy crisis. But, Halima, the thing about oil and gas that you know more than I do is that this is a global market. And here's sort of where my mind is and tell me either Sullivan, you're nuts or you're sort of going down the right path, which is this. OK, call it two million, maybe a million and a half to two million barrels, according to IEA, being not used by China, which consumes about 15 percent of the world's oil because they're lockdowns. So let's say they actually do sort of, quote, reopen and start using more oil. The U.S. is still selling about a million barrels a day from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. That's going to wind down in a right. few weeks. Oh, and by the way, we'll have to be refilled. So what I'm thinking of in my just my, my little brain here, Halima, is that's three million barrels a day that we just two China, one being taken off market for the U.S., 
that seems like it could swing the needle dramatically higher in terms of price. That's absolutely. If they happen at the same time. I mean, that's absolutely right. I mean, this is if you're I'm sitting in Washington right now for the Biden administration, the timing of, you know, a China reopening, winding down of the SPR, you know, alongside, you know, uncertainty about whether you can still take Russian barrels. You know, can can India continue purchasing at current levels if they basically say we're not going to abide by this price cap? And so there's a lot of uncertainty about where this market is going. But the trend line this morning looks like it's headed higher for sure. Well, you're in D.C. You can ask them. I'm in Brussels, which is the D.C. of Europe. I'm going to see if we can get some of these commissioners to come out and talk to us. Halima Croft, always a pleasure. You can't see it, but I'm moving around a lot because it is cold, which, by the way, is not good. Cold, bad, because that gas will just continue to draw down. Halima Croft, as always, love your insight. Thank you very much, Halima. And that was Brian Sullivan with Halima Croft. A great discussion there, Brian. I certainly learned a lot. Uh, Brent crude at 87. For context, we were at 98 a month ago. Coming up, call them lame ducks, lame duck tax deals. Businesses making a last-minute push to preserve key breaks. But the calendar is not their friend. We've got a live report from Washington next. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Let's head to Washington now, where lawmakers, lobbyists, and businesses are racing against the clock to pass tax deals. Alon Mui joining us now with whether it'll get done, Alon. Good morning, Seema. Congress is scheduled to leave for the holidays in just two weeks, but businesses are hoping there's still time to secure some key tax breaks. On the top of the list, restoring the full R&D tax deduction. Due to a quirk in the law this year, companies had to begin amortizing those expenses over five years instead of taking the entire benefit right away. In a recent letter to Congress, 178 companies, including Intel, Lockheed Martin and ServiceNow, wrote, failure to reverse this harmful policy will mean less innovation, impair America's competitive position, weaken our national security and undercut the well-paying innovation jobs supported by R&D. Companies are also pushing to preserve full expensing of their capital investments that's slated to start phasing out next year and keep a more generous formula for calculating net interest deductions. Now, this package of tax breaks hinges on two things. First, Democrats want some tax changes of their own, namely reinstating all or part of the enhanced child tax credit that expired last year. Second, any tax package would likely be folded into a bigger end-of-year omnibus spending bill. But Republicans and Democrats are still hammering that one out, and it's not clear they'll be able to reach a compromise. SEMA companies say that the change to the R&D deduction alone is costing them $29 billion and and could impact tens of thousands of jobs every single year. Back over to you. Alon, if these tax changes don't pass by the end of this year, what, what exactly happens then? Yeah, well, businesses will have to pay more money. Already, we're seeing some businesses feeling the pinch because they pay uh, their taxes on a quarterly estimated basis, so they're already paying for some of that money this year. Um, lobbyists are going to continue to push for it, of course. But the important thing to remember is that this is by design. Back in 2017, when lawmakers were overhauling the entire tax code, they lowered the corporate rate to 21 percent. And in exchange to help pay for that, they made some of these other tax changes to take effect in outlying years. Now businesses are having to deal with that. And so they are now starting to see the consequences of the trade-offs that lawmakers made back in 2017. 
The next year to watch is 2025. That's when the whole individual side of the tax code comes up for renewal. You can bet that Congress is going to be looking through that closely. That could be another big chance to get some of these changes made. Well, a lot happening. And the countdown is on, I guess. Alon Moy, thank you. On deck, a Goldilocks economy and what the Fed needs to do to get there. We'll talk about the week ahead with money manager Greg Branch. That's next. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, you can check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. We're everywhere. And we will be right back. Welcome back. It's a fairly busy week ahead. Here's some of what investors should be watching. Today, we get data on services PMI, the ISM Services Index, and November factory orders. Tomorrow, it's the Senate runoff election in Georgia, plus a look for earnings from AutoZone and Toll Brothers. On Wednesday, look for October consumer credit and results from Campbell's Soup and GameStop. Thursday, the Disney Plus version with ads launching for $7.99 a month. We'll also get earnings from Broadcom, Costco, Lululemon, Chewy, and DocuSign. On Friday, look for November producer price index, the December consumer sentiment report, and October wholesale trade. Let's talk more about the week ahead and the markets, which are coming off two straight positive weeks with Greg Branch, founder and managing director at Veritas Financial Group. He's also a CNBC contributor. Uh, Greg, always great to see you. I, I don't know about you, but I'm a little confused because last week on Wednesday, we received a rather dovish speech from Jerome Powell. Then on Friday, a hotter than expected job support. So what does this tell us about what to expect from the Fed next week? Right. And so the Fed is doing something different. They've done something different the last year than typically they've done ever in history. They're trying to give us guidance. And, you know, sometimes just like with analyst guidance, just like with company guidance, uh, that guidance will sometimes be spot on and sometimes it will need revisions. Uh, At the end of the day, are we probably closer to the end of, of the rate rising cycle? Probably, probably just past the midway point. Uh, by my analysis and by my analysis, and I think we'll start to hear this more in the coming weeks, the terminal rate's probably more like 6%. That's what that job report number showed us. And remember that that, that uh, Powell gave us his kind of Santa Claus assessment for where we were before that jobs number came in. Also, I believe before we revised the third quarter GDP number up to 2.9%. So where does that leave us, Seema? Well, it leaves us in a situation where we know that the Fed wants to combat inflation in a way that it doesn't become systemic in the minds of the public, where it doesn't become a structural part of our expectations. And so while I admit that eventually we'll go to higher for longer, we're not there yet. We're still simply on higher because we haven't accomplished that yet, as all these sentiment surveys point out. And so based on that jobs number, based on CPI, I think, which will not show another meaningful reduction. I think we're going to see another 75 bips in the middle of this month. What does that mean for the economy then? Well, you know, look, Powell has been pretty straightforward about this. We need to destroy demand for workers. We need to mitigate the strong demand for labor because we simply don't have enough supply. We're still sitting at about 1.7 jobs for every willing worker. And until that comes down, strong wage growth will continue to be one of the most poignant characteristics of this economy. And so they've been quite uh, candid in that that is their target, that, you know, we saw unemployment still sitting at 3.7 percent. We saw participation tick down, which, you know, obviously leads to 
further future wage growth. And so, you know, without any meaningful impact on that so far, there's going to be more pain in the economy because they need to destroy the demand side uh, for labor. Talk about demand. Uh, Look at the story out of China, Greg. We have multiple cities across China loosening COVID-19 restrictions after those protests we saw last week. Uh, Chinese stocks once again surging at this hour. What's your read on this? So it's an interesting development because at the end of the day, uh, many of the uh, crowd, much of the crowd pointing to a dovish tilt for the Fed points to some of these global commodities Mm -hmm. like oil, seeing the price come in without acknowledging the global role that this plays. You know, China is the biggest importer of oil. And so, you know, we saw a very interesting OPEC meeting uh, where they decided neither to cut nor raise and see what's going to happen as China opens up a bit. Uh, This is good for the global economy uh, in that some of the recessionary forces will be uh, beat back to bay a bit. Uh, But it also means that we'll probably see more inflation in some of the commodities, some of the metals mining, which we've seen, some of the energy uh, that we've seen, where people were hoping we'd get a reprieve and therefore put the Fed in a more dovish posture, which I I think is, is likely not to happen now. Yeah, I always like connecting the dots. What China does, how that could impact what Powell does over here. It's always an interesting game here to play. Greg, thank you for joining us. Always appreciate your perspective. That is Greg Branch. Always my pleasure. Always my pleasure. Let's now get back to Brian Sullivan, live in Brussels, Belgium, with a look at a busy day and week ahead. Brian, what's on tap? Yeah. All right, we're going to wrap up WEX by wrapping it up and then looking ahead for the rest of the day and the rest of this week here. Of course, okay, so the main headlines happening today, and there's a lot happening. You've got, of course, the EU sanctions on Russian oil, they're kicking in. You've got the price cap of 60 bucks for Brent, which is sort of theoretically kicking in today. You've got OPEC meeting yesterday and very quickly deciding They will continue their 2 million barrel per day cut. We know it's not 2 million, more like 900,000, but they are not adding production at a time that the world may need it. So there's a lot of oil headlines. Oh, and by the way, do we mention, Seema, that today is kind of the day that China decided it is going to start to kind of reopen and thus use more oil all on the exact same day. Very coincidental. Okay, so that is today. We're going to talk more about oil from Europe all day here on CNBC. Looking ahead to tomorrow. We talk about the U.S. role in what is happening here. And one of the reasons we came to Europe is U.S. natural gas, liquefied natural gas. I won't say SEMA is, quote, saving Europe, but the additional flows from the United States to here, certainly helping to mitigate some of the pain, call it a a Marshall Plan for energy, if you will. That's going to be tomorrow. And on Wednesday, we'll talk about the role of renewables and trying to wean off oil and gas forever anyway. Is it possible? And if so, who wins? Oil today, gas tomorrow, renewables on Wednesday. And I'll send it back to you, Seema Modi. An action-packed week. This as we watch the national average price of of gas here in the U.S. at $3.40. Brian Sullivan, see you very soon. Let's take a look at futures right now, indicating a lower open. The Dow is currently down 141 points. NASDAQ, you'll see. Down about 37 here in pre-market and the S&P 500 down 18. This as we watch oil prices surge by around 2% following that OPEC decision. Much more from Belgium ahead. That does it for us on Worldwide Exchange. I'm Seema Modi. Squawk Box is next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Life is a highway. 
And on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.